0: Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Knaxtat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mohscollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Jeremy Bordeaux. Jeremy is the Director of Dermatologic Surgery at University Hospitals, Cleveland Medical Center, and a Professor of Dermatology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jeremy. Ah, Great to be here. Now, together with some of your colleagues, you published the study titled Retrospective Evaluation of the safety of large skin flap, large skin graft, and large interpolation flap surgery in the outpatient setting. And that was published in Dermatologic Surgery. Now, tell us about that article and just give our uh, listeners who may not have read the whole article as of yet a summary of what, what you did in that study.
1: I'll give you a little bit of background that many of our listeners are gonna be quite familiar with. And that is, we have known for quite some time that what we as most surgeons do is quite safe and effective. There have been multiple studies including prospective studies, large studies looking at the infection rates, bleeding rates, necrosis rates of typical Mohs surgical cases followed by repair. What happened was I was having a conversation with one of our senior colleagues one time who was quite curious about the size and complexity of repairs with which. I was presenting at one of our national meetings. And this person asked me if performing those particular repairs were safe in the outpatient setting. And he personally didn't think that that was the case. I was a little taken aback because this person was someone who was at the forefront of most surgery many decades ago and was one of the people that had to fight to actually get into operating mm. rooms back in the day. And paved the way for us to do what we did. So I was a little surprised that we were being questioned in what we were doing now. But after I got past my defensiveness, I said, hey, you know, maybe this is a question that needs to be answered. So what I did is I went back and looked, I think it was about a seven and a half year period at the time, at just the large repairs that I had done during that time. What I did to figure out which repairs to include is I use the codes for large flaps, which are flaps greater than 30 square centimeters, large grafts, which are grafts greater than 20 square centimeters, and interpolation flaps, whether that's nose, forehead flap, retro other interpolation flap. And I look back to see what the complication rates were for just those specific cases. Now, during that time period, I found 331 cases that I had performed, and to give you some perspective, this made up a little less than 4% of the cases I was doing. So we're talking about the most complex, small percentage of reconstructions that, that we do. And when I looked, what I found was that the post-operative infection rate was 5%, the rate of bleeding was 0.3%, hematoma, 2.4%, necrosis. Three percent and dehiscence 0.9%. Now, what I can tell you is that these figures or these numbers are a little bit higher than what we find in our everyday cases, but they are still lower than what you find in the literature for when these repairs are done under the operating room. So the take home point is, even when we're doing these very large complex flaps and graphs or interpolation flaps in the outpatient setting, it is safe. It's cost-effective. We can be doing them. We should be doing
0: them. Right. And I think this sort of study adds tremendous value to really all of us who, who do these cases. And I think it's easy to sort of get skewed, but at the end of the day, you're right in that we're talking about, you know, a very small minority of our cases, but it's great to highlight that even these cases can be done safely. And so, Amongst your your statistics, was there anything that surprised you more than um, the rest when you look at hematomas or infections? Was there one number that you didn't expect to see like it came up in your study?
1: Well, I think the first thing that I was not expecting was that during that seven and a half year period, I did not have a particular algorithm for when I would prescribe antibiotics. And I'll tell you that for straightforward things, I, I never use antibiotics. But looking back over that period, for these large flaps, graphs and interpolation flaps, when I did prescribe antibiotics, it did not in any way affect the infection rate. So I thought that was very interesting, that whether or not these people were on antibiotics or were given antibiotics, it did not affect whether or not they got infected. That was a little surprising.
0: It's especially interesting if you look at sort of the factors that then end up actually being associated with infection. And you have it simply being the presence of a large graph, a flap size greater than 70 square centimeters, or upper extremity surgery. And that seems to be much more significant for the risk of infection than whether or not prophylactic antibiotics were given at the time of surgery. Now, certainly, there's a lot of confounders to that. But any idea of why upper extremity surgery tends to pose such a significant infection risk in the population that you studied?
1: I did think about that, and I think if we combine the fact that in that location, it's either going to be a large graft or a large flap, because there were no interpolation flaps done on the shoulder, that, or the upper extremity, that these people most likely are, are being very active with that limb, I would assume, uh, maybe, a little too active. Maybe they get into something they're not supposed to. That's that's really the only thing I could come up with, with the, the upper extremity being increased risk of
0: infection. What is your practice pattern like now that the study has been in print in terms of uh, prescribing antibiotics? Have you further reduced that justified by your own data or are you sticking with what you've traditionally done?
1: Yeah, so what I do now is I'm much less likely to give antibiotics for these repairs Pretty much at this point, I will give antibiotics if I'm doing a cartilage graft with an interpolation flap sometimes, and if I breach nasal or oral mucosa, although to be honest with you, I probably am doing that less and less. So to answer your question, I continue to give less and less antibiotics.
0: And and I think that's great. And certainly you highlight in your paper the the risk of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that continues to increase. So I think this is great data to have on our end. Now, it's interesting that you conducted this study, albeit retrospectively, over a fairly long time period from 2006 to 2013. You've evolved a lot in your practice as a surgeon during that time. And did you consider at all or look at all how your experience level played into the complications? Or was there a decrease in complications over time? If you're addressing some of our listeners who, like me, are just less than five years out from fellowship, have you noticed a a change or a trend in how your complications play out over time?
1: That is a really good question. And We did not look at that, although now I'm quite curious. We didn't look at that with this specific data set. I can tell you anecdotally that the amount of post-operative bleeding that I deal with now is much less than what I did when I started out. And that includes doing more advanced reconstructions more frequently at this point in my career than when I did when I started. I think a lot of that has to come with experience of figuring out in what oozing can you actually leave versus when do you have to open the flat back up and cauterize it i think a lot of it also has to do with how skillful your nurses and your medical assistants are at bandaging your patients i think that was a really huge learning curve for me starting out i feel like as my staff have gotten much better at applying the pressure bandages that The bleeding has subsided. Uh, I will freely tell you that when I started out, I was coming in uh, nights and weekends much, much, much more frequently than I do now. I should knock on wood right now before I get called over the weekend and have to come in. But I do think that that's something over time with experience and skill that that you do gain. I'll tell you, Thomas, another thing that I found to be very helpful for me specifically for for forehead flaps is telling the patient and the caregiver what to expect that night and basically wrapping them up and saying, listen, go home, go get in a recliner. I don't want you to move until tomorrow morning and you're going to come in first thing in the morning and I'm going to see you. Oh, and by the way, expect that this is going to ooze. It is probably going to dribble down your cheek all night long. That's okay. We just got to make it to the morning. Oh, by the way, here's my cell phone number. You can call me anytime you want. If you have any questions or concerns, You know, we'll bring you in and we'll change the bandage. However, if you can make it to the morning, we're just going to change the bandage then. And I think setting those expectations up to the patient and their caregiver helps them a lot because they know they can call you if they need you. They also know that if you go in at three in the morning, you're basically going to change the bandage. And they also know if they can make it to seven, that's what's going to happen anyway. I think that's been very helpful for keeping people from
0: calling and having to come in and see them. Absolutely. You know, um, in follow-up to the bleeding, the one interesting thing is your study concluded right as we were seeing more of the newer anticoagulant medications implemented and on board in our patients. We're talking about the um, rivaroxaban's of the world, our direct thrombin and... Uh, factor ten inhibitors. Have you sort of going forward from your study noticed increased bleeding amongst your patients with those apart from the fact that you simply can't reverse them as easily as say a, a warfarin therapy?
1: I have not. We did when they first came out, we published a case report on somebody who had quite a bit of bleeding after reconstruction, but you know, that was just an anecdotal case report when these things first came out. Uh, since then, I don't feel that the amount of bleeding from those particular agents has increased my rate of postoperative bleeding or hematoma. I don't think that it has. And I'm not sure, I think that some of these newer agents have been studied by our colleagues. But it's it's leaving me right now exactly what that showed. I do not stop any of them. I don't think many people are. Uh, we're continuing to have people take these blood thinners and the antiplatelet agent.
0: And are you using any oxidized cellulose polymer, absorbable gelatin powders, anything like that with your larger cases? Um, I know you didn't specifically mention it in the paper, but I'm curious if that's something that you do to control any bleeding you have or whether it's truly about good electrosurgical hemostasis and or suture ligation in your practice.
1: So I would start with the forehead flaps. What I do is I very aggressively cauterize the wound edge of the pedicle, especially the mm-hmm. you know, the epidermis where those bleeders can be. I, I very aggressively cauterize that. I also very aggressively cauterize anything on the underside of the pedicle that's bleeding. I have no worries about aggressively cauterizing the pedicle. I've heard in the past, and some people have told me don't cauterize the pedicle. The way I see it, any blood that we keep from coming out the pedicle is going to go down the pedicle to the flap, so I think that's a good thing. After that, I use Surgicel to wrap the pedicle. After I wrap the pedicle with Surgicel, I wrap that with Xeroform, and then where the pedicle exits the forehead, I will stuff some gel foam in there if need be. People have done all kinds of things. Some people will actually graft the pedicle. I'm not so sure any of our colleagues are doing that. That was reported in the plastic surgery literature. I think that's probably a little much. Some people have told me they literally sew the pedicle on itself like a tube. So the two edges of the pedicle actually wrap around and are sewed tight. I've never tried that. In the past, I've sewed um, Puracol on the back of the pedicle. That really didn't seem to do any good. So that's what I do now. Regarding the large grafts, a lot of times with the large grafts, I will put a pretty hefty, strong bolster on there. And not only will I really make sure that that bolster is pushed into place, but I will go around the circumference and tie it really tight. So you actually get some tamponade effect as that bolster is pulled tight and it pulls the edge of the wound sort of into and on top of the bolster. I find that to be helpful. With regards to the large flaps, I think the main thing is making sure you don't have any dead space and also making sure that your epidermal edges are really, really approximated. You had asked earlier about people on blood thinners and antithrombotic agents. I have found that if you have an unapproximated wound edge, like if one of the wound edges is say a millimeter higher than the other, people that are on those blood thinning medications can just ooze from that for weeks and weeks and weeks. So making sure that you have those edges totally approximated and that can be helpful. And then another thing we found is that I think the bleeding risk was higher in the cheek. And I think that has to do when we do those sort of large cervical facial rotation flaps from the neck up to the cheek. I feel like you frequently can end up with some dead space in that area, especially as people are moving their necks back and forth, that can pull and, and cause some dead space. I think that can lead to some bleeding and some hematoma formation in that area.
0: Absolutely. And that's where I've seen some of the more persistent, sizable uh, hematomas just because you have so much space for accumulation of fluid there. Now, Jeremy, uh, you, like me, work in an academic setting. We, we talked at the beginning of this uh, conversation about that your study was prompted by a senior dermatology colleague of yours. How often are you being confronted by your non-dermatology specialist colleagues Uh, regarding the sort of practices that we do, these outpatient surgeries, and what do you tell those colleagues of yours now in light of this data that you have?
1: Well, my situation, I think, is a little different than many academic institutions. We have not had a very large plastic surgery department for quite some time. In fact, there was a while uh, where we only had one plastic surgeon in our department, and actually the way we're set up here is that the plastic surgery residents and the ent residents spend substantial time with me and i actually am the one that exposed them to these well larger repairs for us quote smaller repairs for the head and neck surgeons so when they spend time with me that's when they see the forehead flaps that's when they see the quote larger sliding flaps now it's not a free flap that they're seeing and they're clinic, but that's sort of what they're being exposed to when they're working with me. And I work very hard to try to teach them. And what I found is as these people that have spent time with me go out and start practicing in the community, they have a much better appreciation and understanding of what we do as most surgeons regarding the complexity of reconstructions that we do. So in my particular institution, I don't really have turf battles or turf wars. If anything. my colleagues understand and respect what I do. And it's a nice setup. Now I know it can be very different in other institutions depending upon historically who has done what, and also depending upon where departments get their revenue. And I know places not in the city that you or I are in where entire plastic surgery departments were dependent upon Mohs reconstructions were over 50% of their revenue. And so when a MO surgeon who was trained and skilled in reconstruction came in and stopped sending those out, uh, those people got very upset. So I'm, I'm fortunate to be in my situation and try to do as much education and teaching as I can, not just of other surgical colleagues, but, but of all physicians. I think many physicians really are not aware of the reconstructive skill and capabilities that we as a group have and nor are the general public, and I really try to educate all of those groups as much as I can, as I know that you and and our colleagues
0: do. Absolutely. No, I, I think that's uh, exactly what it comes down to as we continue to push forward in what we do for our patients in the outpatient setting about documenting our experiences closely, monitoring our outcomes as we're now doing with the Mosaic uh, registry that is now alive, and then sharing our our success with our colleagues. Uh, Jeremy, this has been a really great conversation. I think talking with you about this article and branching out from this article really allows us to get a, a better sense of what, what prompted you to do this and what you encounter in your day-to-day life as a mo surgeon. Are there any other aspects of the topic or the paper that you wanna to highlight to our listeners before we conclude our conversation?
1: I will put a plug in, you know, the real answer to this question is a prospective trial and it's something that we're currently doing. Actually, we have a multi-center prospective trial for large flaps, large grafts and interpolation flaps got a whole slew of different organizations that are working together, which will give us really big numbers and also will increase the generalizability. I mean, there's a lot of limitations to this study. It's retrospective. It was just one person. It's just me. So I think there's definitely room for improvement and areas for growth and more questions that we can continue to answer so that we can continue to improve upon our patient care and, and push our specialty forward.
0: Excellent. Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I also want to thank our listeners for their attention. The article that was discussed today is also going to be included in the Mose College Reference Library, which is accessible through the ACMS member login. To all of our listeners, please communicate any feedback or suggestions for future guests to us via info at mosecollege.org. And before we end this podcast, I want to follow up with two housekeeping items. Number one, A reminder that submission deadlines for abstracts to the annual meeting is January 10th, and that's for the annual meeting in Baltimore in May. And the Mosaic registry, as I already discussed with Jeremy, is now live. Mosaic is available to ACMS members in the United States and is a benefit of ACMS membership. There's no cost to participate in the registry, but exactly for conversations like the one we just had and for topics like this, it's important for us as a specialty to track our outcomes. Questions about the registry can be directed to Tammy O'Connell at registry at Thank you so much, and I hope you'll tune in next time for Conversations in Mohs Surgery.